Okay, so I'm going to be talking about uh, building a biblical identity. Uh, in other words, uh, building a healthy self-esteem. So uh, some years ago, about 1990, Adi and I went to the UK and we did a whole lot of training, counselor training, uh, at a place called Waverley Abbey House. Um, and it was run by Selwyn Hughes. I'm sure many of you will know of Selwyn Hughes. He founded a CWR. And while we were there, he told us a story of a man who had come to him for counseling. And he had asked him, what was your most painful event? What was the, the, the most painful thing that had happened in your life? And he told the story that when he was eight years old, uh, Christmas was coming. And as was the tradition, the Christmas tree was there. And uh, there was a parcel with his name on it. And it was quite heavy. He got all excited and thought, wow, you know, I wonder what it is. And on the day of Christmas, he ran down the stairs. It was probably an up and down house in the UK. And um, he ran down and couldn't wait for everyone to be opening presents. And finally his time came and he ripped off the wrapping. And inside this parcel was a brick. And he was confused. And he looked at his dad. And his dad said, what's this? And his dad said to him, I gave you a brick because that's all you're worth. And so here's this man, uh, middle-aged now, struggling in his marriage, struggling in relationships, struggling with himself, because he believed those words. They had stuck with him all the time. That is all you are worth. We have a friend as well who is always apologizing for herself. She's so defensive. Um, she struggles to build real deep relationships. And the problem is, is the way she sees herself. It's her self-image. The way we see ourselves deeply affects how we relate to other people, doesn't it? If we see ourselves inferior, as inferior, we assume that's how other people see us. And then we tend to withdraw. Or we put on a big show. Uh, we don't really, uh, we can't just be ourselves. But the person with a healthy self-esteem, on the other hand, is a person who's happy with who they are. And, and they can be themselves without pretending to be anything. And uh, they can give the best of themselves uh, in an unreserved way. I, I was a keen cricketer, played cricket when I was at school, and I enjoy the game. And I know that as a batsman, that if you have confidence, you play so much better. And I suppose that's true for any sport. And uh, if you inform and you're confident about your skills and where you're at, you just relax and you're able to play so much better. On the other hand, if you doubt yourself and you don't have that confidence, you get all stiff and awkward and jerky and don't play well. Is that right? And in a way, that's a picture of life. That's what happens. Uh, so we're talking about building a healthy self-esteem. And uh, here's one way to improve your value in the eyes of, the, of people. The next slide, thank you. So, yeah, that's his worth. So, uh, what do we mean by self-esteem or self-image? All of these, self-concept, they're all the same thing. Self-esteem, self-image, self-concept. And here's the definition, again, the slide, if you will, thank you. Self-esteem refers to an individual's overall evaluation of themselves or confidence in one's own worth or abilities, in other words, self-respect. And I know that sometimes people and Christians 
uh, are, get worried when we talk about self-esteem because they say, aren't you encouraging us to be proud? Aren't you promoting self? Aren't you promoting the flesh? Jesus said we should deny ourselves and take up our cross. Aren't we contradicting that? But I'm not talking here about the will. Uh, Jesus tells us to die to ourselves. Absolutely. And that's an attitude that concerns being selfish or selfless. That's concerning the will. This is about how we see ourselves. This is the value that we give ourselves, our worth. And they're different. So here's the irony that actually when we know our value to God, it enables us to humble ourselves. So that example when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and we read the scripture, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, and he was returning to him. He knew that about himself. It was then that he took off his outer clothing, and he washed the feet of his disciples. You see, it was the knowledge of, his knowledge of who he was and the confidence of who he was that enabled him to, to, to engage in that incredibly uh, humble act, an act that was reserved for slaves and, and probably women slaves as well. But that's what Jesus did. He knew who he was. He didn't have to try and engage in kind of behavior that to impress people. And so he was able to, uh, to, to humble himself. And so... Very quickly, as we look at the definition of self-worth, self-worth is not self-worship. Thank you. Uh, self-love is not necessarily selfishness. I think it can be, but it's not necessarily. Self-affirmation is not self-conceit. Self-awareness is not self-absorption. Self-denial is not self-denigration. Putting off sin is not putting yourself down. And humility is not humiliation. Just wanted to clarify those things before we get into it. I've already mentioned some of the, the effects of a poor self-esteem, but here's a list, and I don't want to take time to, to, to uh, labor these things, but here's the list here. These behaviors include shyness, yeah, excessive shyness, withdrawal, we, we draw into ourselves because we're afraid of what other people think of us, uh, self-denigration, uh, and then we go to the other extreme as well, where we engage in attention-getting behavior. We become boastful or brag, uh, we, we focus on our status, our titles, our qualifications. We make sure everybody knows those things. Uh, we can become very dogmatic, uh, insecure basically, critical and judgmental, rigid in our thinking, can lead to workaholism, touchiness, defensiveness. A poor self-esteem can result in loneliness. We're so afraid of, of other people and what they might think of us, and so we withdraw and become very lonely. And intimacy failure, just too afraid to get connected to other people. So we isolate ourselves. And some of the long-term effects can lead to depression. Stress, very stressful to be amongst other people if you don't have a sense of self-worth. Uh, we can feel guilty, a sense of shame, and that guilt can be pervasive uh, as we think that we don't measure up. A sense of shame, as I said. A sense that we're a failure. Not that we fail, that we're a failure. And our poor self-esteem causes us to engage in all kinds of behaviors that sets out to try and disprove that very thing. We, we try and disprove that we are inadequate. We try and get the affirmation and the approval of other people. And it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, that again affects how we see ourselves. 
And again, very briefly, I'm not going to focus on the, some of the benefits of a healthy self-esteem. It impacts our confidence, as I've already said, our decision-making process, motivation, relationships, emotional health, understanding of our potential. I think all of that is, is uh, critical. So I hope you can see the importance of this topic, how relevant it is to us all. Dr. James Dobson, many of you all know of him. He's the author and founder of Focus on the Family, psychologist as well. And he says this, the majority of people experience low self-esteem to one degree or another. It's a universal problem. So how is your self-esteem and my self-esteem formed? How do we get this image of ourselves? There's a saying that goes like this, it's not who I think I am, it's not who you think I am, it's who I think you think I am. And there's some truth in that statement. It's what I think you think that I am that gives me my self-image. And psychologists will tell us that when we're young, as we, as we grow up, as children, we ask a few questions, and one of the main questions we ask ourselves is, who am I? Who am I? And we get the answer to that question from significant people around about us, parents particularly, but might be aunts, might be grandparents, uh, might be siblings, uh, might be teachers, but those significant people around about us act as a mirror. And so again, uh, I want to quote John Stewart. He says this, that significant adults such as parents, teachers, siblings become the mirrors in which young children see themselves. The problem, though, is that many mirrors are cracked or distorted. And so the message that we receive as children is often distorted and untrue. Does that make sense? As we ask this question, we're getting that answer from those people around about us. We, we call those significant people, the message that those significant people give us, the parent messages, not only parents, but the significant people around about us. And the problem is, the reason that they give us a distorted picture is that, that very often uh, people in the world in general use criteria of the world to give value to people. And so the kind of criteria that the world in general uses to apportion value are things like this. Here's the thing, our looks particularly for women, it's so important how we look. Um, money and possessions is a huge thing. If I've got money, then I'm somewhere of value. You know, if someone drives in here with the latest Mercedes-Benz and someone else draws, uh, comes in here with a bicycle, who do we see as more valuable? Isn't that so? Our color, unfortunately. Not only white, black, brown, but the, the shade of that color. We apportion value to our intelligence and education, status and position. Am I the person who brings the tea and sweeps the floor or I'm the CEO? We apportion value to those things. Sporting ability, social skills, age and so on. Those are the kind of criteria that people use to apportion value to people. So if you are considered good-looking, whatever that means, because that's just a kind of cultural thing, and you're intelligent and have letters behind your name, and you, you drive an upmarket car, and you live in a big house in a good part of town, and you're a sports person, and you have lots of money, and you've got good social skills, well, you're someone important. Isn't that so? But if you are considered just ordinary-looking, again, whatever that means, and you haven't been to university, 
and you drive a second-hand Nissan Sunny, as we did for many years, and you rent a house in a down-market part of town, uh, and you have a relatively low-paid job, you can't hit a ball, then you don't rate very highly as far as the world is concerned. My brother in the UK, this is some time back, uh, this is before he married, he had a very fancy uh, sports car, it was a 280ZX uh, Nissan. And, uh, you know, the traffic in the UK, if you've been there, is quite heavy. And often when you're coming into a road, you have to wait for someone to let you in. Well, when he was driving his fancy car, he didn't have to wait long, they just let him in. And then he married Sue, his wife, and she had a little Mini Cooper. And when he was driving that, he would sit there for ages before anyone would let him in. So what are they saying? Well, if you drive a sports car, you're someone special. Yeah, please, come in. If you drive a little Mini Cooper, you're a nobody. Is that right? And you see, we adopt that value system. We take those things on board. And we compare ourselves to everybody else. And we compare ourselves negatively. So we don't compare ourselves to the people that we've got more of, whatever it is, money or intelligence or education or whatever. We compare ourselves to the people who've got more than us. I remember sitting in my office once, there were two, two women who I, I considered very good looking. And I was fascinated at the conversation that they were having because they were comparing their bad features. Features that I hadn't noticed, actually. But isn't that what we do? Because looks is so important. And so it is that significant people around about us consistently send out messages and we take those things on board. But not just verbal messages, they absolutely critical, the kind of thing that our parents say to us. If you're a parent, please think about what you say to your children. So it's not only verbal messages, but it's the non-verbal as well. It's how we get treated that sends a message. And so the absent father sending the message, you're not worth staying around for. And that's what the child will, will believe. The teacher who gives all the positive attention to the child who's the, who's the clever one sends the message that all the others don't quite measure up. It's not that we are, I'm not saying that we must all be the same, that we're all exactly the same in sporting, in intelligence, etc. We're different. The problem comes is when we apportion value to these things. So there's a, a, another slide there. There we are, inferior, superior. That is the problem. It's saying because you have letters behind your name, you've got a degree and, and therefore you're intelligent, you're of more value. And if you don't have a degree or you don't have O-levels, well, who are you? That's the problem. And we, again, take those things on board. As parents, we can inadvertently, as again, parents, please think about how you treat and how you speak to your children. But I had some friends, and I'm going to change the names, uh, but they, they've told the story uh, publicly, but uh, let's call them Joan and Barbara, two girls in a family. And uh, when the mother introduced them, the mother would say to the older one, uh, you know, this is my older daughter, she's my clever one. What does the other one say to herself? Oh, I'm the stupid one. And then she'd introduce the other one, 
and she'd say, this is my younger daughter, she's my pretty one. What did the other one say? I'm the ugly one. In addition to those things, social media. Social media has a huge impact on this issue, doesn't it? Because people only post the best picture of themselves. They only post pictures when they're flying high on those special holidays and having a grand time. They don't post pictures of when they're in the pit, do they? And you, we compare ourselves and think, wow, you know, my life doesn't compare to that. You know, what's wrong with me? Social media has a huge impact on how we see ourselves. And we end up thinking, I don't quite measure up to that picture. And so we are constantly receiving these messages, verbal, non-verbal, and we take them on board and internalize them. And they become a belief system. They become what we believe deep down about ourselves. And so there's this chart, which again, I think can help you in the next chart, if you will. Uh, is there one before that? Yeah, there we are. These parent messages uh, translate into attitudes and values. We take those on board. That becomes an internal dialogue. There's a language in every single one of us uh, that is going on all the time. Habits of thinking. It's an internal dialogue. And that, all of that together becomes our self-concept, how, how we see ourselves. So again, if we can go to that next slide. If you will, it's just an example. For example, if you live in a family where there's heavy pressure from parents to perform academically, and so the value that gets communicated is that to be someone of worth, you need to get good grades. However, I know that my results are average. Actually, most of us are average. That's why they're average. Most of us are average. And therefore, I'm of average worth. And so I see myself as incapable and inferior. And it's the total of these attitudes and beliefs and convictions that become our self-concept. Does that make sense? And these attitudes and convictions are reinforced. But that internal dialogue is reinforced because what happens is actually, I'm running ahead of myself. Let me just uh, go to another slide. These are conditions, a slide that, that, that are, are parent messages that you might have received. So if you've lived with criticism, shaming, rejection, and that might be in a family, that might be in a marriage of a critical spouse, that might be at work, constant criticism. You take those things on board, begin to see yourself as that person sees you. Unrealistic standards and demands. We think, I'm, I'm useless. I can't, I can't reach that. Expecting the child to fail and often saying so. Teachers, please be careful of what you say. I remember a teacher talking to our son and saying, you'll never get your A-levels. He got an A. So chuffed. <laughs> but what a thing to say. Think about what you say. Uh, lack of praise, encouragement, compliments, repeated, over, overly harsh uh, punishment, implying that the child is a nuisance. You know, I've got to earn the school fees to pay for you to go to school. Man, you're a nuisance. Does that make sense? If you've lived with that, the absence of cuddling, hugging, just physical touch is so important. Overprotection. We're sending the message you're not capable. Be careful of overprotecting your children. How our body is viewed is a huge thing. 
And so all of those things might have affected how you see yourself. So it's those parent messages and the, the, both the verbal and the non-verbal. But also, in addition to that, is the events that we might have suffered. And so traumatic events can affect how we see ourselves. So somebody who has um, been abused as a child will often, just classic, will often see themselves as trash. They'll see themselves as bad. What happened to them was bad, but they will take that on board and see themselves as bad, as trash, as used goods. They're just good to be abused. Or a man whose wife leaves him for another woman. What's wrong with me? I'm not good enough. I didn't measure up. Well, the child, and this is common, child whose father divorces his mother, the child will often believe they weren't good enough for the dad to stay. And so these are events which affect how, uh, how we see ourselves. And uh, they say of children, they are good observers. I think there's a slide. Children are very good observers. They, they don't miss much, but they're very poor interpreters of those events. They misinterpret them. And then these things are reinforced. So if I don't see, feel good about myself, let's say I, I don't see myself as a good sporting person. So when, when my friends are playing sport, I kind of hang back. You know, I don't, I, I don't want to show them how useless I am. And so they be, tend to ignore me. And when they're picking teams, I'm the last to be picked. That reinforces what I believe about myself. And so what I believe becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it gets reinforced. Does that make sense? So I'm talking about how that self-esteem has been formed. I now want to talk about how we develop a healthy self-esteem. How do we get to the stage where we um, can build our identity in the Lord? So to start with is that, and this is a big subject, and I'm just going to touch on it, is that we have legitimate needs. All of us have legitimate needs. Needs to be loved. Needs to be accepted. Needs to belong. Needs to be valued, to have worth, and needs to, be, to have significance, to know that our life counts for something. And the, the core of our problems, the reason that we have problems, is that we try to meet those needs apart from God. We look to people and to the world to try and satisfy those needs. And of course it doesn't work. Those, we call them strategies, don't work. And they prevent us from relying on God, where those things were meant to be, those needs were meant to be met. So the first step in getting a healthy self-esteem is to do what Jesus said. Jesus said, "The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news." That's the, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is the King. The kingdom of God is coming, and He's saying, "Repent, sub, climb down off the throne of your life. Let Him be the King, and trust Him. Live with Him." So that's the core of the gospel. But it's also the lifestyle that we should be li uh, living. And in this regard, we need to repent of those strategies of trying to get those legitimate needs met through people rather than through Him. Trying to get our needs met by trying to impress people through our status or our money or the car we drive or sporting ability or posting, whatever it is that we're doing, trying to get value from other people, we need to let that go need to let it go and say, Lord, forgive me for trying to meet that need apart from you. 
And then we need to believe and say, Lord, show me my value in your eyes. And let me just quickly say that there's nothing wrong with smart cars. There's nothing wrong with fancy homes. There's nothing wrong, of course, with education or status in themselves. But it's when we rely on those things and when we try and use those things to give us what only God can give us. Does that make sense? Those things become idols that we are depending on rather than depending on God. And then once we've t had that shift where we say, Lord, please don't let, us, don't let me try and look for my need to be met in these things or in these people, and I'm going to look to you to meet the need, then we need to concentrate on our thinking and focus on what we say to ourselves. So having determined that ultimately our value comes from God, I need to look at what I'm saying to myself about myself. I said to you, there's this internal dialogue, there's this unconscious thought. We call them automatic unconscious thoughts. We're not even aware of them. They are habits of thinking, and there are ways of doing it. We need to ask the Lord to show us when we are saying things to ourselves that are not true. And I'm telling you, all of us will be doing that. We need to identify those and change the thinking for the truth. So Josh McDowell, again, uh, he, he says this. He's written a book called His Image, My Image. It's well worth reading. And he says this. Uh, See yourself as God sees you. No more, no less. See yourself as God sees you. So how does God see us? Yeah, so we, as... as uh, McDowell says we need to identify that those wrong, destructive, distorted thinking, reject them and replace them with what God says about us. So what is our worth in the eyes of God? I have an illustration here, which you, you've probably seen the illustration, but I, I think it's worth doing even if you haven't seen it. So I've got a piece of paper here. How much is it worth? It's just a piece of paper, isn't it? But you're telling me it's worth 20. So I can buy 20 loaves of bread. Is that right? But it's just a piece of paper. Why is it worth 20? I'll tell you why. It's because this gentleman here, and I can't read his name. It's written so small. Is Stephen, someone or other, in America, has given it value. However, please don't tell him. Well, how much is it worth now? 20. Really? Okay. How much is it now? And if I rub it in the dirt? 20. Doesn't change. <laughs> How much is it worth now? <laughs> you want it? <laughs> you see, this has value because it is being given value. The Reserve Bank governor equivalent in the States has given it value. Nothing that is done to this or is done or it does, the hands that it passes through, what it buys, doesn't buy, changes its value. And that is the same for you. You have intrinsic value. If my phone was solid gold, absolutely solid gold, 
Um, it didn't matter what I did to it, it would maintain its value. I could melt it, I could crush it, I could break it into pieces. If it was solid gold, it would still have value. Is that right? It doesn't matter what happens to you. It doesn't matter who says things to you. It doesn't matter what you've done, even. Can you believe that? You have intrinsic value, imputed to you, given to you by God. It's not earned, but it's given. Does that make sense? So let's have a look at some of the scriptures that look at what God says about who we are, and particularly our worth. So the first scripture, God said, let us make man, that's you, by the way, in our image, in his likeness. When God created the earth, every aspect of the earth, he said it's good. When he made mankind, he says, very good. You are the peak of God's creation. And we reflect something of the glory and the majesty of God. You do. You sitting right here. The psalmist says this, and Haley quoted this as she started um, her worship today. The psalmist says, for you created my inmost being. I want when it says... Um, my, that's you, you created my inmost being. You knit to meet me together in my mother's womb. Can you believe that? When, that you're in your mother's womb, God was at work. He says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. And that doesn't matter what size or shape or tallness or shortness or whatever. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. You're unique. Absolutely unique. Your thumbprint is absolutely unique. Your iris absolutely unique. There is no other you in this universe. God made you fearfully and wonderfully. And then David in Psalm 8 says this, You made him, that's mankind, a little lower than heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. God crowned you with glory and honor. I hope you're taking these things in, guys. I hope you're absorbing them. This is the value that God gives to you. And then a very special verse. It's just such a lovely verse. Psalm 43. The Lord says of his redeemed. He says it of Israel actually. But Israel was his chosen people. And we are his chosen people. Is that right? With a new Israel. He says that since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you. Do you know that? Do you know that you are precious? You're like a jewel to the Lord. You're valuable to Him. And He honors you. He values you. That's how He sees you. You, not your neighbor, you. And maybe the most significant and most uh, important scripture is that you and I are valuable because God the Father was prepared to sacrifice the most precious, valuable thing to Him for you. He was prepared to take His own Son. He could have taken anything on the universe. He created it to purchase you, but He didn't. He took His very own Son, allowed Him to suffer on a cruel cross, because He so values you that He wanted you to be with Him forever. Scripture says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. Redeemed means bought. Bought from slavery. 
wasn't with perishable things, silver or gold that you are bought, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. That is a measure of your worth in God's sight. And folks, you need to know that. Would you use your child to purchase anything in this universe? God the Father used his child to purchase you. And so, folks, we need to identify the lies that we say to ourselves. We begin to recognize what we are saying that is negative, distorted, untrue. And this is a spiritual battle. We sang a chorus to that extent uh, earlier. This is, remember that Satan is the father of lies. He is the deceiver of the brethren. He will tell us as many lies as he can. But we need to do the battle. The scripture says we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We need to recognize those things that we are saying are not true, reject them forcefully. There I am saying that thing to myself when I'm beginning to feel inferior or afraid or nervous anxious when I go into a crowd of people, whatever it is, oh, I'm saying that to myself, I don't measure up. Reject it. Replace it with the truth. I am a jewel. And not only our intrinsic worth that God has given us, but also the gifts that He's given us, the talents that He's given us. So there's that scripture that says, God has given you gifts for a particular work. And all of us, the scripture says, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. And sometimes we might feel, well, isn't it boastful to talk about my gifts? No, it's a gift. You didn't earn it. God gave it to you. There were some things he didn't give to you. It's good to know that as well. But there's something quite uh, important to know what your gifts are, where you're good, what you can do, and what you can't. And not only that, but God guarantees us success. He says, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Isn't that amazing? That God, who's given you gifts, has given you a purpose. He gives you gifts so that you can fulfill that purpose. That purpose is the purpose that he's given to you, no other person. That is how significant it is. I have a brother, I love my brother, uh, he's in South Africa, he did very, very well academically. All those, you know, all those things I talked about that people use to value people, he's probably got them all. He got to the top of the, the, uh, the corporate world, has every gizmo that opens and shuts, <clears throat> and sometimes he says to me, uh, Ian, what are you doing in that country? You know, he says, you've helped enough people, you know, come on, you know. Basically what he's saying is get a life, you know, do something real, is that right? And I have to do the work. I have to say, Lord, is that what you think? I know that God has given me gifts and he's given me a calling to do a work that he wants me to do that will count for eternity. And he's done the same thing for you. Do you know that? You see, these scriptures can give us a sense of competence. A sense that, yeah, I can achieve. I can fulfill God's purpose. Now, it might not be something that is public. You know, counseling is very private. You know, no one sees it. But that's okay. 
God sees it. God sees it. And it's telling ourselves the truth about those things. And folks, this takes work. It's not an overnight thing. I said we develop habits of thinking. In fact, uh, psychologists tell us that we wear uh, neurological pathways in our brain. There's, you get a, a, some sort of a trigger, and we'll say the same thing. Oh, I don't measure up. Or I'm inferior. I'm inadequate. Or, or uh, I or, ought to do better. I ought to do better. Whatever it is, whatever we say to ourselves, is a habit of thinking. And it's not going to change overnight. And we need to do the work where we recognize when we're saying those distorted lies of the devil to ourselves and we need to reject them and replace them. And we need to do that again and again and again and again until we are telling ourselves the truth about ourselves. Changes our self-concept. And then when we begin to take those things on board, we get a, a positive cycle. So if I see myself as okay, because God says so, I can walk into a room full of academics, got qualifications far more than me, and maybe they're well, much more better known than I am. It's okay. I'm known by God. And I don't have to be shy. I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to be nervous. I can be myself. And the interesting thing is this, is that once we know who we are in the Lord, we, we can let go of that self-preoccupation and begin to forget about ourselves. And we can move confidently towards people. And we can confidently pick up the baton that God has given us, the job that He's given us to do. Does that make sense? Remember that cricket illustration? Once you know who you are in God, you can have confidence. And it becomes a positive cycle. Because you're confident, other people see that, they reflect that, they treat you accordingly, and that reaffirms how you see yourself. It becomes a positive cycle. I'm going to finish just with a, a very brief personal testimony. My, my father died when we were five years old. Credit to my mother, by the way. There were five of us, and she was left on, the, on her own with five of us. And... Um, I'm not sure. We had a very secure upbringing. My mum did an amazing job, but I didn't have a father to give me that affirmation. I think that's the job of a father. And I, 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 I don't know this for 100%, but I know that if I'm criticized, I, I react. If I'm disrespected, I, I overreact. And I think it comes from this thing of not knowing my value. And I know one of the issues that I've had to do to work on is the whole people-pleasing thing. As a pastor at Northside Community Church, I spent my time trying to keep everybody happy. Didn't work, by the way. Because you can't keep everybody happy. I, I burnt myself out, and I had a very unhappy wife, saying, you've got to make up your mind, you're married to the church or me. And so that's what I used to do. People-pleasing found it very hard to confront, unable to say no, workaholic. All those strategies I developed to try and get people's affirmation of me. And I had to realize that that was idolatry, that I was trying to get from people what actually I need to get from God. And then I need to work at my thinking and see myself as God sees me. To know that by His grace, before the beginning of time, God chose me.
created me, chose me, called me, redeemed me before that. He has given me value. Do I deserve it? Absolutely not. Have I done anything that makes me worthy? No. But he's given it to me. And he's given it to you. It's an ongoing work. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for your presence with us. And Lord, we acknowledge that so often we've believed the lies of the devil. We have bought into the world's value system. And we've used that criteria, Lord, and see ourselves so often as inadequate, inferior, not good enough, don't measure up. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for looking to the world. Forgive us for looking to other people to try and get value. And Lord, you've said to us, Lord Jesus, you say to us, repent and believe. And we want to turn away from those strategies, those strategies of trying to engage other people. And we want to put ourselves in your hands. We want to trust you, Lord. And I pray that you would speak to us very clearly through your word. May we know what you say about us. Help us, Lord, to reject those lies. To take on board and to believe solidly what you say to us. Help us, we pray. We ask all of these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.